This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and welcome to the Time Warp. Well, actually, you probably noticed about two weeks ago, we posted a very old episode of B-Side in the podcast. Well, that was our very first episode, produced back in 2001. And every week now, for the next 81 weeks, I'll be posting a new episode, well, a new old episode of B-Side in our podcast stream and also up on our website. And while we're venturing through the archives, you can determine what the next new edition of B-Side will be about. On our website, if you go there right now, bsideradio.org, that's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org, you can find a, a posting. It says, choose your own adventure. And we want to know what you think the next theme should be. Here are your options. Childhood dreams or dreaming. Awkward moments, search and discovery, success and failure, dust yourself off and try again, rules to live by, run-ins with the law, and roadblocks and milestones. Those are your options. I have some preferences, but I guess I won't tell you what they are. Go on our website, vote. When we get to 100 votes, as soon as we get to 100 votes, the top vote-getting show theme idea will be our next show. So please, go to bsideradio.org, that's the letter B-S-I-D-E, radio.org, and in the meantime, enjoy episode three of B-Side. Good morning, I'm Dave Gilson, and you're listening to B-Side. Today, we'll take a look at how people survive the challenges of everyday life and the things they do to get by, financially, emotionally, and even linguistically. From a young priest in training who's just taken a vow of poverty, to a woman who got off welfare and got into UC Berkeley, to a blind woman fighting discrimination. And I said, well, I just have to let you know that the way you treated me was just like telling a black person to go to the back of the bus. How does that make you feel? And finally, meet a couple who found they were a lot happier with a more stripped-down lifestyle. Since we're all kind of out here and, I mean, we're naked, it's real hard to, you know, not just be kind of nice. And <laughs> See how people across the Bay Area are getting by as On the Record flips to the B-side. People have always used music as a way of getting by. B-Side dropped by Amoeba Records on Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue to look for some tunes about facing hard times to stick in today's show. At first, the Amoeba staff seemed a bit startled to have people showing up in their store with questions about music. You know what, let me see if somebody else wants to, because uh, I'm kind of getting intimidated by the microphone. Okay. Soon enough, we found someone who was happy to give us a crash course in a genre of American music that tackles the problems of modern life head-on. The blues. Mississippi, a lot of the Delta blues, a lot of it is about escape. It's about getting away, getting to some other town, getting to like promised land. A lot of times that turned out to be Chicago. That's what Killing Floor is all about. It's almost like I got to this promised land and it just ends up with me being on a line. You know, my woman left me and I just end up working at a slaughterhouse in Chicago and it's not so great. Sighted people often think the hardest part about being blind is doing routine things like making dinner or catching the bus. But a bigger challenge for many blind people is getting past stereotypes. 
Emily Gunnison spent an afternoon with a woman in Berkeley finding out about the other side of being blind. Inside the East Bay Vivarium down in West Berkeley, Michelle Brayman is shopping for baby mice and rats to feed her two pet snakes. She's holding one small rodent in her hand, checking for a good size. So it's got eyes open. Eyes are closed. You want eyes barely open? Just open? Eyes open, uh, but with no sharp teeth yet. Michelle puts the two boxed mice in her bag. But before she leaves, she visits the Texas rat snake she has been wanting to purchase. The salesman tells her that the snake is shedding, so it might be in a foul mood. He can't be responsible if it bites her. She takes it anyway and wraps his five-foot-long body around her arms and down her back. He's very friendly, real sociable. He's like a a little puppy dog. He goes around sniffing at everything. He's just totally neat. Hi, baby. It's okay, baby. Yes, it's okay. Michelle is 52, and she's been blind her whole life. She is also a widow, and she survives on the pension and life insurance from her husband's death, along with the monthly Social Security payments. It's not a fortune, but landing a job is not easy to do when you're blind. In the car, on the way back to her house, she explains. In one of my former lifetimes, uh, I was a massage therapist, and I um, applied for a couple of jobs, and one of them was actually a doctor's office. They basically told me, you know, it's obvious you're very qualified, but we're afraid you're going to fall down the stairs, so we don't want to hire you. And then there was a salon that I applied for a job and she initially said she was going to hire me and then she changed her mind because she said she didn't want to get fleas in her carpet from my dog. And the excuses don't even end there. Allergies is another one people tend to uh, use a lot. And in fact, when I uh, worked at a chiropractor's office, they sprung that one on me and I just said, well, If that's the case, then you'll just have to come up with another accommodation for me. And that was kind of the end of it. They didn't really push it much. Michelle lives in El Cerrito with her two snakes, plus two cats, a gerbil, and her guide dog, Alden. She also owns two horses in Martinez. You kind of get the sense that she finds more comfort in her animal companions than she does in most other people. When we get to the house, she takes the mice upstairs to feed the snakes and asks me to give a running commentary. Where is he? He's um, inside the little box. His hide spot? Okay. He has his head sticking out of it. Do you mind holding the box? We'll see. Ooh, wow. He was hungry. (laughs) Wow, that's really dramatic. Michelle is fortunate in that she can even afford to keep her menagerie. Many people with disabilities have to rely primarily on Social Security benefits, and those amounts are set well below the national poverty line. But Michelle certainly isn't choosing to stay out of the job market. There's a lot of things I would have liked to have been able to develop. You know, I'm very artistic. I can do interior and exterior design. I also would like to work with kids. Because I am talented, because I can do it. And I think it's just really going to waste, and it's just not fair. Michelle likes being aggressive and assertive to fight stereotypes about blind people. For the most part, though, she can only try to change attitudes. 
There was one time that she knew it worked. At a restaurant in New York, the hostess didn't want to give a table to Michelle and her dog. When Michelle was finally seated, the hostess came over to apologize. And I said, well, I just have to let you know that the way you treated me was just like telling a black person to go to the back of the bus. How does that make you feel? And she said, it makes me feel really bad. And I said, oh, why is that? She said, well, I am black. And I said, oh, really, because I didn't know. Michelle says that people should ask themselves how they really feel about those with disabilities, because maybe they'll discover some prejudice they didn't know they had and get rid of it. But she's pretty sure that won't happen in her lifetime. For B-Side, I'm Emily Gunnison. After a crash course in the blues, our quest for music brought us to the country section. Now, we weren't looking for guys singing about their achy, breaky hearts. We wanted songs that evoked the feeling of good, old-fashioned lonesomeness. Yeah, I mean, the classic would be Hank Williams. Any songs in particular? Lost Highway is probably one of the greatest Hank Williams songs. It kind of just deals with um, him being a a drifter and how he's not going to change. He's always never going to be comfortable in one place and he's just stuck on the lost highway. I'm a rolling stone all alone and alone for a life of sin I have paid the call when I pass by all the people say just another guy on the lawn Learning a new language for survival is an entirely different experience than learning it for pleasure. It's one thing to study high school French. It's another thing to move to a new country without knowing the language. Roxandra Gidi takes a look at learning English the hard way. Like most immigrants, I arrived here with no knowledge of English. It was August of 1990, and my mom, my dog, and I had left Venezuela behind. High school was starting in two weeks, and I worried and wondered if I'd be able to express myself to my new teachers and classmates. So for a brief period, I decided that the best way would be to trust the advice of one of my language tapes. One, be interested in the people, their country, and language. Two, nothing is more effective in creating a friendly atmosphere, and nothing flatters people more than when a foreigner tries to speak their language. I too tried to flatter others with my poor English skills but ineptitude slowly gave way to proficiency. But how do people get by in the meantime? Okay, first of all, my name is Saad Natur. I am from Palestine in the Middle East. I came here just like five months ago. What brought Natur to San Francisco was his dream to go to an American college. But soon after getting here, he realized that English lessons wouldn't be enough for him to understand school lectures and readings. So Natur got an evening job where he speaks plenty of English. In a store, small store, it helped me to improve my English language. It's getting better now because a lot of chatting with customers or with people in the street or something. It's helped me a lot. Natur speaks in Arabic with some of his co-workers, but it's his conversations with Delhi customers that have helped him decipher American expressions and slang, just a few of the things his English textbooks always skipped over. I'm not familiar with this slang language, so it took me time until I got it. And uh, <laughs> I begin to use it. Practice it as often as you can. 
want to learn it. Evelyn Moshenschnik and 10 members of her family came from Moscow to Berkeley in 1989, just two weeks before the Loma Prieta earthquake. After the ground stopped shaking, Moshenschnik needed help, but she couldn't ask for it in English. After two weeks was the earthquake. We are, we are going to the street, and they said to us, Welcome to America. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to California. Try to imitate the pronunciation as nearly as you can. The only way to learn a new language is to have the need for it and to practice. That's what Maruca Rivas says. She came here alone from Nicaragua in the 1950s, without a college education and without a job. She had to learn English in any way she could, and she did it without having to pay a dime for her lessons, by watching television. The important is to learn to hear the English, because if you don't listen to the English, then you never get acquainted with Rivas says she also learned a whole lot about English and American culture while riding the bus around the Bay Area. I don't have a car, so I always drive the bus. That way you talk to the men and the tokens and where you go. And I go all the way through, from the beginning to the end. And that way I learn how to travel in San Francisco. It may take weeks or months or even years for some people, but the fears of speaking a new language eventually do go away. For me, it happened when I stopped listening to tapes and started reading magazines and listening to the radio. There's no guaranteed method of learning English, but eventually we all figured out how to get by. Remember, knowing the language is the best way of knowing the country and enjoying it more. For B-Side, I'm Roxandra Gidi. While many former dot-comers are struggling to adapt to their newly slashed incomes, Mia Lobel says you can't miss what you never had to begin with. I got out of college at just the right time. The economy was booming, everyone was finding work, and I was moving to California. I'd heard it was the land of opportunity, the land of the dot-com, but that's not why I was going. I figured if I was swept up into the boom, great. But I wasn't looking for fame and fortune. I wanted the Jack Kerouac, free-spirited California experience. My degree in cultural anthropology served me well, and I got a job as a temp. I made ten bucks an hour in an outpatient mental health clinic. I went to the Folsom Street Fair and experienced my first Castro Halloween. I ate burritos three nights a week and played ultimate frisbee in Golden Gate Park. I was living the good life. Every so often I would run into someone from college who was making $60,000 a year making video games or would hear about someone making a million overnight for creating a new search engine. I admit I was a little tempted by the prospect of making it rich in the computer world, but I couldn't stand the thought of sitting at a desk all day, and the whole foosball-in-the-office 25-year-old CEO thing just seemed weird. Besides, getting rich didn't quite fit into my idea of Bay Area living. Instead, tired of the temp scene, I decided to go to grad school. I got by on an $8-an-hour work-study job and a big, fat federal loan. I made it all the way through grad school this way, still managed to pay rent and get back east for major holidays. I even managed to buy a nearly functional car. Then, well, the downturn. And I didn't feel a thing. Thousands of people were losing their jobs, moving away from California, dejected. The Bay Area had changed, they said, would never be the same. Well, 
I'm still here. Lots of us are still here, unaffected by the boom and untouched by the bust. Those of us who came out here for the place, not the prospect of success, have no reason to leave. We've developed a Herb Kane love for the Bay Area, unwavering. And no economic swings are going to change that. California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe Mia Lobel is a producer for Youth Radio. Find it so hard if you ain't got the do re me. You're listening to Calix 90.7. Stick around as On the Record flips to the B-side. Our search for songs about getting by continued in the rock section, where we found a new guide. My name's Greg. Uh, worked at Amoeba for too long. Greg tried to help us rock out a bit. It's like the Rolling Stones, like a lot of their early materials, a lot about like not being satisfied. I mean, if you just pick out one of their anthologies or something, I bet, you know, 80% of the songs in there are going to be about, you know, being unhappy. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find you get what you need. It's well known that higher education is one way of getting what you want, but getting access to it can be tough, especially if you've been out of school or trying to get off welfare. Besides, Clotting Zapp met a woman who came to Cal after being on welfare and out of school for 20 years. Now she's bringing her experiences into the classroom. UC Berkeley social welfare grad student Kathleen Jones-West is teaching a class on welfare reform for about 40 students. For Kathleen, this class isn't purely academic. She's teaching from personal experience. Good morning, everyone. Am I late? Are you early? The class is called Welfare Reform and Higher Education, and the goal is to give students the information they need to navigate California's welfare system, either as a professional social service worker or as a recipient. A lot of people talk about the time limits. Kathleen learned how welfare works firsthand. She was living in L.A., married with two children, and working as a receptionist at a cable company when one day about 15 years ago, her husband didn't wake up. It was Mother's Day, and I thought that uh, he just didn't want to get up and take me to breakfast. I thought he was playing possum. So I grabbed my son, and I said, Come on, Daddy doesn't want to get up and take me to breakfast, so you take Mommy to breakfast. So we went out to breakfast, and when we, when we came back, he was still laying in the same spot. And so I nudged him a little bit, and he fell out of the bed, and he went into a grand mal seizure. Her husband, an epileptic, was in a coma for a week. She couldn't afford to pay the bills, so she applied for welfare. While her husband eventually recovered, he was no longer able to support them, and it was up to Kathleen to shoulder the task. But she didn't have the skills or the education, so with only $40 in her pocket, she caught a Greyhound bus to Berkeley with hopes of going to college. Her family soon followed. It was something in the back of my mind that I wanted to do, and I knew that if I could get here, that it would solve those problems. Kathleen enrolled in Vista Community College, where she got her associate's degree. Then she moved up to UC Berkeley for her bachelor's, and she'll receive a master's this spring. 
Kathleen ended up staying on welfare for two years, but the bad memory stayed with her. You're treated like a number. It's, it's uh, kind of an assembly line attitude. Um, there is no personal interaction with you. They, wa- they don't want to know your problems. They want, don't want to know your story. They just want to know if you qualify. <laughs> In class, where discussions often combine personal experience with policy, Kathleen wants to engage her students in changing a system, which she feels has room for improvement. There are people here who really need this information that I'm disseminating in this class. Not in an academic sense. Not in a, dec- and in a survival sense. Some students in the class are having a hard time just getting by. Martine, a senior graduating next semester in social welfare, says the class speaks to her. I think it's really relevant to my situation right now. Um, I'm a single mother, and I also think that people really need to be educated about the welfare system because it affects everybody. The way things are going right now, Martine says she might have to go on food stamps to finish college. And Kathleen says many students have similar stories. I don't have any food in my refrigerator. How do I feed my children? I can't get a daycare and my teacher won't allow me to bring my child to class. Um, I'm having a custody battle with my child. So many stories, so many reasons why a social worker is needed, I think, at this level. For now, Kathleen's class is that resource because she figured out the system and got herself out of it. Now she says it's her calling to help others do the same. For B-Side, I'm Claudine Zapp. Brother Brian DeLessi is a 26-year-old Catholic priest in training. In many ways, he's a normal guy. He plays basketball, listens to music, but he lives in a priory with about 100 other brothers and priests. And five months ago, he took vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty. Producer Lissa Mudd talked with Brother Brian and brings us this profile. The vow of poverty actually is probably the easiest of the three vows from the standpoint that We do have certain amenities provided for us, which is nice, but then the idea is that our goal is not to obtain material wealth. From a poverty standpoint, we basically live pure economic communism. (laughs) Um, And I mean that in all of its good senses. We do share everything in common. And any sort of money that we receive, we simply give to the community. We are given $75 a month, and then everything else is provided for us as far as food and housing and our tuition. I find sometimes that $75 is more than I need. I always thought I would have a nice wife and kids and... uh, you know, and be a teacher or something like that. And so I guess originally I was surprised because I remember studying one night in college. I was like a junior. I don't know, I was studying Chinese history or something like that. And then all of a sudden it just kind of came to me like, you know, not like a burning bush or anything like that, but very much more subtle. And it was just like, I think I'm supposed to be a priest. And then that was kind of trouble because then I was like, oh, okay, so I had to go call my girlfriend and, you know, go talk to my parents and all this sort of thing. Over a process of time, seeing what I desired in my own life and what I thought I needed for happiness, 
Material wealth wasn't one of those things that was high on the list. Our lifestyle is, you know, I think radically different in some respects from, from most people's lifestyle. Um, in the end, it's really, it's God's grace that makes it possible. It's God that calls us to this life. It's God that sustains us in what we do. Our prayer brings us back to a focus of being humble. That personal profile was produced by Lissa Mike. Sometimes, getting by requires a radical change of lifestyle. That's what happened to some relatives of B-side crew member Tamara Keith. She visited them to see how they're stripping down to the bare essentials to make ends meet. Until about six months ago, everything seemed to be great for my Aunt Carol and Uncle Scott. They had a nice house in Truckee right across the street from Donner Lake, just minutes from Tahoe's best ski runs. And everyone in my family envied their Mercedes SUV. But then something changed. Things were going just fine, I thought. And then all of a sudden I realized we couldn't afford to make the house payments. And so... We had to make a decision. So my aunt and uncle decided to downsize. They gave up their nice house and nice car and moved into a 1974 Comanche motorhome. You know, we kind of drove by a car lot in Reno one day and said $2,300 on that motorhome. So I went in, asked like if a number fell off or something, but they said no, and we wrote a check and drove it down here, and it's been down here ever since. Here is Laguna del Sol, an upscale campground outside of Sacramento. And it's here that my aunt and uncle have spent the better part of the last five months. It wasn't really plan A, but plan A oftentimes doesn't work out. So I guess about plan F or G is in effect right now. What makes this situation truly unique is that Laguna del Sol is a clothing optional resort. Yes, you heard that right. Clothing optional, as in leave your pants, shirt, and modesty at the gate. They have showers, swimming pools, a restaurant, and it's still cheaper to stay there than at most traditional campgrounds. I showed up at Laguna del Sol on an unseasonably warm Saturday in November. Turns out this was perfect weather for nude sunbathing. My aunt and uncle met me at the gate. My uncle was wearing shorts. My aunt was wearing much less. I pulled out my microphone, got set up for the interview, and then realized that at some point along the way, my uncle had dropped his shorts. Since we're all kind of out here and, I mean, we're naked, it's real hard to, you know, not just be kind of nice and, <laughs> you know, everything else. There's, there's, I don't know, it seemed like a lot of barriers are already kind of broken. And uh, people just seem to be real honest and... You know, good to each other. My aunt and uncle had visited the nudist resort several times before, but had no plans to move in until they found themselves in financial straits. Then, Uncle Scott says Laguna del Sol became not just a place to let it all hang out, but actually a cost-effective way of surviving some really tough times. We stayed out here the whole summer in, in between houses, and it was over three months from, like, from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And our bill was like 700 bucks. And that was including eating out sometimes and going to the bar every weekend and drinks and camping and 
everything. I mean, 700 bucks, I mean, you know, that's not even half most people's rent. And, that, and we're talking three months of just having a nice time. This wasn't plan A or plan B or even plan D. But for Carol and Scott, it's the way they're going to be living for a while. And so we're working our way up. <laughs> we're wa- working from square one. And I think it's going to go fine. I think we're going to be happier this way without all the bills and um, trying to keep my Mercedes. And <laughs> I'm not going to do it anymore. I'd rather be happy. And I've learned to be happy. I think with what I've got. Life is a continual roller coaster. Every day is a roller coaster. I mean, you know, right now we're, you know, clicking clicking back up the track and, you know, and then sometimes you get the slide. And you never know. You just have to get up every day and do it. And when they do work their way back up, Scott and Carol say they won't stop going to Laguna del Sol. They like it there. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith. Fully clothed, in case you were wondering, at Laguna del Sol. Back at Amoeba Records, our search for music was coming to an end. After listening to the blues and hearing how you can't always get what you want, we needed something a bit more upbeat. Greg took us back into the soul section and found what may just be the quintessential song about survival. Yeah, there you go. Glory Gaynor. I will survive. Yeah, you guys guys are on a budget. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. And so you're back. You've been listening to B-Side. Our crew this month is Rixandra Gidi, Emily Gunnison, Rose Hoban, Mia Lobel, Lissa Mudd, Amy Scott, Gavin Tachibana, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. Want to learn more about B-Side and our crew? Check out our website at bside-radio.org. I'm Dave Gilson. B-Side's going into hibernation for a few months, but we'll be back on February 20th with a show about the way things work. In the meantime, On the Record returns on December 12th with a look at the big Barrows Hall construction project. See you then.